Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. In this, the sixth episode of the Hometown Stories Summer Series, writers from the Habit membership take us to all four points of the compass. Sarah Dredge takes us north to Ontario, Canada. Sarah Bannerman, Lindsay Kyle, and Monica Olson take us south to Mississippi and Louisiana. Laura Love goes east, very far east, to China. And Shannon Aaron Stevens takes us west, or in any case, to the West Virginia of his childhood. Our first story is from Sarah Bannerman. Her hometown is Jackson, Mississippi. It's a city that has seen its share of troubles, but also, as Sarah reminds us, it's a city where grace does its work. Metro Center Mall was once the greatest shopping experience in Mississippi. It was a million square feet of neon signs and black marble columns and orange Julius. As a child, I remember indoor birch trees growing through iron grates lining the mall's grand thoroughfare. I remember gazing heavenward in search of the inexplicable birds that I thought belonged in the branches. And high beyond the trees stretched the glass dome roof against which echoed the sounds of crying children and the splash of fountains and the soprano saxophone of easy listening mall tunes. Now I go to Metro Center to contest my water bills. The parking lot now has more craters than places to park. Greenery is taking over, and the landscape looks like the backdrop to every post-apocalyptic movie. The last surviving store at Metro Center closed last year, and now, apart from Jackson Waterworks, the only business that operates there, is run by a lone old gentleman who cuts hair. The fact that I don't know his name, or what he looks like, or even where in the mall he cuts hair makes him seem more legend than true. Ghost towns make ghosts, or maybe it's the other way around. If you look down at the entrance rug of the Jackson Waterworks, you can still see the Gafer's logo, one of the four anchor stores that used to draw shoppers from all over the state. Those of us that stand in line to protest our outrageous water bills stand on the faded brown and burgundy carpet outside of an office where, years ago, I waited with my mother to have our Christmas presents wrapped. The massive atrium at the heart of the mall is now lined with plastic palm trees rather than living birch. And now, oddly enough, there are birds, and they fight to exhaustion to burst through the glass dome ceiling and be free. There's a quiet air of acceptance between we folks on either side of the bulletproof partitions. We all seem to understand that we're playing a game of sorts. I slide my water bill, five times higher than normal, under the plexiglass to a nice older woman and tell her that I have a slow leak in my toilet. After five years, I finally figured out how to win this thing. She smiles and taps out some notes on her computer. Bring us your receipt for repair and we'll adjust your bill. My little scrambling, stumbling victories like this against the Jackson Waterworks feels like a hard-won game of blind man's bluff. My friends and relatives from outside of Jackson who keep up with the news urge me to leave. But when I walk past Eudora Welty's house or have coffee at my favorite neighborhood cafe, I wonder if I've misjudged the city. Perhaps most compelling is another repurposed building in Jackson, the abortion clinic that jump-started the overturning of Roe versus Wade. It's now a consignment shop. In December, the pink house, as it was known, was scraped down and scaled like a fish, and now it is a pearly white, a washing clean. Now I drink coffee at the bean across the street and watch people walk in and out with second-chance furniture. The city's role in the overturning is not a credit to our own piety. There was plenty of outrage even here in the Bible Belt at the Pink House's closure. But it is proof that God is looking to make ghosts into real people. And from those real people come real cities. 
In reality, this city is, like all places, a blend of good and bad. You can see God's original and inevitable good, and you can see where the devil is trying to spoil it. But the spoiled good, as Lewis called it, will one day be thrown off, and forever. In the meantime, it's clear that God is making living, breathing people on either side of the tracks. His kingdom come, His will be done on earth, in the covenant neighborhood and the ghetto, as it is in heaven. At the time of this writing, April 10th, the city of Jackson has had no garbage pickup and hasn't had any since March 31st. The fines we owe in EPA violations slowly crank along at the rate of $1,000 a day. The mayor has directed us to take up our own bags and cans, load them in our cars, and take them to the designated drop-off facility where I guess it makes most sense. Metro Center Mall. Our next story comes from Sarah Dredge. She grew up in Keswick, Ontario, where she walked to school in the snow, uphill both ways. I guess I could start by saying that as a kid, I did in fact walk uphill both ways to and from school, and that in the winter, I definitely did it in the snow. Our little town of Keswick had grown up in cottage country, hugging the shore of Cook's Bay on Lake Simcoe, along a road called the Queensway. Like an artery bringing life from the city, the Queensway started out as Leslie Street down in Toronto and pushed north for 70 kilometres, changing its name as it bent to follow the contours of Cook's Bay before coming to rest at the bulge of the larger lake in the north end of town. This main artery marked the boundary between the farm stretching east and the cottages clustered along little streets branching off like veins to the water. But in that space between the bay and the Queensway lies a long ridge left by retreating glaciers so that each little street climbs a steep hill from the main road and then slides down to reach the lake. By the time we moved to Keswick and I started primary school, more than half of the cottages on our street had become year-round homes. The rest stood cold and empty each winter, the wind off the lake driving snow into drifts up to the shuttered windows and doors. On the other side of the hill, a little more than half a kilometre from the Queensway, not far past our church, Jersey Public School had been built on a parceled-off field on Glenwoods Avenue. That was my school, 1.2 kilometres from my house, but with a daunting elevation change up and down in the middle. In kindergarten through grade two, I took the bus to school. I joined the children who trickled down the gravel streets toward the lake each morning where the bus lumbered along the lake drive, stopping to gather us up at each little beach. The term beach should be clarified, because the reader must not imagine sunny, sandy shores and seashells. Our beach, like the others on the bay, was a shadowy place of muck and clay, with lily pads and bulrushes along the edge. Willows dropped leaves and bugs into the shallows, and industrious and kindly neighbors would rake large mounds of seaweed to the side, so there was a clearer path into the water. We loved it. The beachy beaches are on the big part of the lake in Roaches Point, Jackson's Point, and Island Grove, where the large, wealthy summer homes still stand today. Not to be thwarted in their quest for the prestige of a beachside lake house, a group of the city folk who built their ramshackle cottages near the bay celebrated by naming several of those little streets and beaches after the exotic destinations of the richer city people. 
so my bus would stop to pick up decidedly not rich kids at Pasadena Drive and Tampa Drive and at Hollywood Beach at the end of Hollywood Drive and Miami Beach at the bottom of Miami Drive. But in grade three, the school board deemed me and the other grade three kids old enough to walk the short 1.2 kilometers to school. I don't think the school board lived in Keswick. Facing that steep hill in the morning was a rough start to the day. We'd dawdle at the bottom hoping a friendly neighbor might offer us a lift, but that usually made us late and out of breath when we reached the top and skidded down the gravel edge to the road on the other side. Mrs. Bailey would hold out her stop sign, blow her whistle with authority, and create safe passage for us across the Queen's Way, to where we reached the sidewalk for the easy part of our journey. After school, though, the hill loomed ahead all the way along that flat sidewalk until Mrs. Bailey ferried us across and we began the trudge back up and over. And then winter set in. After navigating the big kids in their snowballs on the flat stretch and meeting a bundled Mrs. Bailey, we would reach the hill. The absence of sidewalks meant one had to risk cars by walking on the road, obviously discouraged, or stumble along the snowbank, sinking or skidding. But even though we climbed that hill every day, it was a fresh shock each time we crested the top to be suddenly blasted by the wind screaming up from the lake. Most days we turned backward for a moment to catch our breath, and then with courage to match Shackleton, we began the slippery descent. There lay the bay, a wilderness of ice, the sun already threatening to set in its winter weariness. As winter wore on, a small village of fishing huts would form out there on the ice, and we could see pickup trucks and skidoos zipping around between the pressure cracks. Lake Simcoe is one of the top ten ice fishing destinations in the world. But that didn't make me feel any better when my frosty nostrils stuck together and my socks started to slide down in my boots. But then... One day you'd come over the hill and see patches of open water between the ice drifts, and several days later you would reach the top, and the wind felt fresh rather than bitter, and the sun was sparkling on the bay as ducks and geese streamed north in their noisy Vs. Soon it was summer. The cottagers returned, filling out the neighborhood with extra friends. Days were spent with bare feet and lemonade, swimming and digging clay down at the beach and canoeing on the river. There were trips to the library and church baseball. Evenings meant picking midge flies out of your teeth after a bike ride along the lake, and roasting marshmallows over twilight campfires. In the summer, we only climbed the hill to walk to church or to the corner store for ice cream. All too soon, though, cottagers were shuttering their windows. I'd wake early to the sound of hunters shooting ducks out in the marsh. School would begin with socks and shoes and backpacks, and the hill between home and school loomed large both ways. In grade six, they paved our street and put a traffic light at the Queensway. We wondered about Mrs. Bailey, but she stayed at her post, pushing the button to change the light and guarding us with her stop sign while we crossed on the painted lines. By the time I finished grade eight, the fields between Mrs. Bailey and Jersey had grown a crop of townhouses and a grocery store. In summer, people didn't usually swim at our beach anymore. We preferred driving out to Jackson's Point. The bulrushes and the water birds took over, and it became a nice place to sit and fish or watch the sunset. But the lake still froze every winter, 
The ice huts still formed their little outposts on the bay, and the wind still knocked the air out of us as we came over the top of the hill. I started high school in a different town, and once again I took a bus. But wouldn't you know it, the bus stop was on the Queensway, over the hill. We're headed back south, way down south, with Lindsay Kyle, who offers this little portrait of Lafayette, Louisiana. Laissez le bon temps rouler, let the good times roll, by Lindsay Kyle. To find my hometown, head south. Once you get there, go further south and you'll find Lafayette, Louisiana. Any further south will land you in the Gulf of Mexico. And trust me, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana isn't nearly as pretty as the Alabama or Florida beaches. The region of Acadiana doesn't boast of the stereotypical southern charm. There's hospitality, of course. If staying in someone's home, you'll be welcomed with a pineapple. Likewise, if you stay too long, another pineapple might suddenly find its way into your guest room. Take the hint and pack your bags immediately. You'll also encounter mossy oak trees, swampy lands with alligators, and languages nearly indiscernible to the human ear. This was my home. I lived as a non-Cajun in Cajun country until my early 20s. I spent much of my childhood trying to reconcile the dissonance of my own non-Cajunness to the world around me. But crawfish season was different. All joy in life revolved around crawfish season, beginning just after New Year's and petering off sometime in mid-April. Friday nights during Lent, when meat was forbidden by the Catholics, we'd gather in force at Randall's restaurant for a feast unlike any other. The Zydeco music spilled over into the parking lot, as did the smell of boiled crawfish. The steam hit my face as soon as the door opened. The air was a strange mixture of spices that made my eyes water. Every table had a hole in the middle, surrounded by a red plastic tablecloth. That hole will become important in just a minute, so stay with me. No menus necessary. My dad ordered a plate of fried frog legs to start. It's true that they taste like chicken, but you'd hardly notice that from the white, creamy, dilly sauce you dip them in. The first course is over before the end of the first song. Every table surrounded a dance floor and a stage. The stage was made for Zydeco music. The Zydeco band played endlessly. An accordion drove the music forward, supported by a vest frottiere, a fancy washboard, an electric guitar, a fiddle, and a harmonica. Together, they made a dizzying sound that accompanied the weekly fado dough at Randall's. If for some reason, God forbid, you couldn't make it in person, the restaurant offered a television viewing. One camera hung from the ceiling, documented every song, offering a view of the dance floor. No commentary, no commercials. Just an hour of the dancing at Randall's restaurant every Friday night on local Channel 4. I danced while we waited for the main course. An old Cajun man, older than history, with almost no teeth, often danced with the younger girls. We would take turns as he'd teach us the two-step, the Whiskey River two-step, and the waltz. The Fado Doe was the only sanctuary against self-consciousness as a kid. Everybody danced. No one judged. Finally, dinner arrived. Two servers hauled a massive silver pot across the room to the table. Carefully, they dumped the steaming contents onto the plastic tablecloth. A bounty of boiled crawfish. 
What is a crawfish? Imagine a tiny lobster. I learned to peel crawfish before I could walk. Crack the tail off the body, suck out the meat, toss the shell into the hole of the table. See, I told you the hole was important. Some Cajuns insist on breaking the head off too to suck the contents. Let me tell you, it's not worth it. If you're going to spend the time to do extra, crack the claws. The meat is soft and delicious. There's a mystery, Cajun magic in eating crawfish. You can eat five pounds and still not feel full. If desperate, try a link of sausage, a red potato, or a piece of corn on the cob. You'll find these boiled along with the crawfish. Or simply wait until your lips are numb from the spice. Wipe your hands on a wet wipe and get back to the dance floor. The music is calling. That was so fun I thought we'd stay in Louisiana. Here's Monica Olson with a story from the village of Longstreet. The Cutest Boy in Longstreet by Monica Olson. One summer afternoon, Annie Lee abandoned her post as librarian to cross the street to the filling station. Owned by her brother-in-law and sister, Aunt Jack, the filling station was a place to get your car filled with gas or to have a burger, hand-scooped from a big bowl of ground beef in the icebox and fried on the griddle. That day, Annie Lee wanted to have a cup of coffee and visit with her sister. Are you worried about her leaving the library during open hours? If so, you're probably envisioning your own public library. But this was Longstreet, 1962, population 283. The library was only a 20-foot square room with one desk. Annie Lee left her granddaughters, Janet Lee and her cousin Mary Lynn, in charge while she was gone. The 12-year-old girls posted themselves at the desk in the little square room. Posed with straight shoulders and serious chins, they imitated their memo, stamping the return date on the card in the back of each book checked out. Mostly, they just sat at the desk and watched folks walk by outside. On this day, the cutest boy in Longstreet, David Bagley, was walking down the street. Now, out of 283 total people, men, women, and children, you might be thinking that being the cutest 12-year-old boy wasn't a huge accomplishment. Perhaps you were right. Nevertheless, Janet Lee and Mary Lynn always looked for him when they came to Longstreet to visit Mamaw. There wasn't much else to do in the small village, which was literally one long street, Highway 5, with a few side streets containing Bagley's Grocer, the post office, and a couple of churches, in addition to the filling station and the library. David wasn't just walking by. He was slowing as he approached the library. The two girls turned to each other in excitement and bewilderment. They had no idea what to do. Perhaps you have some things in mind. Some ideas about what they might have done. They might have looked in a mirror to touch up their hairdos. They might have arranged themselves, sitting prettily, to their best advantage when he walked in and saw them. They might have decided to smile at him and say, Hello, or good afternoon. If you thought of anything like that, then you should have been there that day to counsel them. Unfortunately, you weren't there. Here's how they counseled each other. What do we do? I don't know. What do we do? We can't just let him walk in without noticing us. No. Looking around desperately, they settled on the reference section where the biggest and heaviest books sat together. The girls looked at each other, back at the reference section, and back at each other. 
Let's hit him over the head with the phone book. Yes, that's perfect. Janet Lee and Mary Lynn grabbed the phone book of Shreveport and all its surrounding towns and villages and hid behind the door. When the cutest boy in Longstreet walked past them, they slammed it onto his head. Bursting into giggles, they huddled together in victory, pink cheeks shining. When they looked back to the object of their desire, their glow faded. His cheeks, too, had taken on some color, but were of a different shade of red altogether, a darker shade. His eyes narrowed, his chest heaved, his mouth opened, and he let them know exactly what he thought. Sometimes it's hard to bear the burden of being handsome. He marched out of the library and down Highway 5 while Janet Lee and Mary Lynn stood in the doorway, looking longingly after him. The cloud of longing lifted when Annie Lee returned from her coffee break. She had seen it all and gave them a good scolding. The girl's only consolation was that they were too old to pick a switch off the bush outside the door. Such switches were stripped of their leaves and used for swatting a naughty child's legs, uh, mostly the boys. John Wayne, John Harry, and Billy Jack got the switches. The two girls didn't need to be switched that day. Annie Lee's scolding and David Bagley's disdain were quite enough. It might not surprise you that it didn't work out between David Bagley and either of the girls, despite so much earnest flirting on their part. I like to think they must have learned something from their mistake that summer afternoon, as both of them went on to eventually use words with cute boys go to dances with cute boys, and ultimately marry cute boys. But not the cutest boy in Longstreet. Dolly China isn't literally Laura Love's hometown, but when it came time to leave, Laura felt like she was leaving home. I didn't know what I would miss. I feel like an imposter for claiming Dolly as my hometown. I wasn't born there, I didn't grow up there, and it's not where my family is from. It's not even in my home country. But as I packed to leave, I grieved like an exile being led away from the promised land. This small mountain city in southwest China is the hometown of my heart. It's where I learned how to be an adult, a wife, and a mother. Where I stood at the kitchen sink struggling to turn the hot water pipe from solar to water heater, and came to a vivid and despairing awareness of the depth of depravity in my own heart. It was there that I faced an intense battle with depression and anxiety and fought desperately to cling to faith and hope. And it was there that I really came to know that my security rests not in the strength of my grasp, but in the grip of him who said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. We've been back in the U.S. for five years now. The distance and time and space has given me some clarity on our life there, as if my eyes couldn't see it up close and I had to hold it at arm's length, like my father with a menu. I find myself surprised by some of the revelations that have come into focus after this time. I knew I loved the stunning mountain views, the subtropical flora and fauna, the pulled-out-of-the-ground-yesterday freshness of the produce— and the unique cuisine full of vegetables and seasoned with lard. I knew I would miss our friends, the yellow concrete walls we called our home for years and slowly made our own, and the privilege of living a short drive away from a hike in the foothills of the Himalayas. 
What I didn't expect to miss was my community of early morning exercisers when I went for a run. The older men would walk backward down the road, blaring Chinese opera from speakers strapped to their waists, while they slapped their arms rhythmically. Groups of women rehearsed fan dances in the park. Badminton players practiced in open spaces, and Tai Chi enthusiasts would strike fearsome poses with their swords. A few daring souls braved the cold, polluted river for an early morning swim. Occasionally, even animals would join in, like the tied-up goat that charged me to the full length of his rope, or the pig that got loose and chased my friend down the street. She made a personal record that day. I do not miss the rats that often skittered across my path in the dark, turning my basic run into an unwelcome obstacle course. I knew I would miss after-dinner walks with my family as we ambled home from the little restaurant on the corner. A gentle evening breeze would pick up, and we never tired of the silhouette of our high western mountains against an orange sky. But I didn't realize how much I loved the various community vignettes that marked those hours. The group dances around the lily pond, the kids rollerblading under our feet, and the elderly community exercising on the curious metal equipment rooted in concrete at every little park. Being introverted and easily overwhelmed by constant attention every time we went out, especially with the kids, look, three kids, no, four. I didn't know I would miss the camaraderie we had and a throng of pedestrians whenever we stepped out of our flat. I knew I would be happy that I didn't have to walk long stretches with heavy groceries, but I didn't know I would miss being able to walk for so many of our errands. I didn't know how lonely I would feel when I looked out of my suburban window in the U.S. or took a stroll in the neighborhood and didn't see another soul. I expected to miss the glorious views and mild climate, but I didn't realize how important it had become to me to keep the windows open year-round for fresh air or how much I loved rainy season and the way it muffled the sound of the traffic outside our flat, or how I enjoyed the background noise of primitive brooms scratching the street as sweepers performed their early morning work six stories below. These things were woven into the rich fabric of our everyday lives and wrapped around me like a well-worn quilt that I took for granted until it was jerked away and I was left feeling cold and exposed and wondering who I was without that facet of our lives. But of course, it's not only this geographical and cultural context that made Dolly my hometown. It is that combined with the special community into which we sent down roots, a community of both locals and many other expats. I miss this place and these people on a daily basis. I dream of them on a weekly basis. And because most of this community has left Dolly, my hometown has been metaphorically wiped off the map, as though flattened by a giant tornado from the American South or washed away by an Asian tsunami. There is no going home for me. In our last days in China, I grieved deeply and intentionally. Usually one to push away sadness, if at all possible, I had to make a concerted effort to pause and acknowledge those feelings of grief. The best way for me to do that was to write. I kept a small journal for this purpose in particular, and I poured out a lament over the loss of this chapter in our lives. It was a healing lament, and it taught me on a heart level an important lesson articulated by Amy Carmichael. In acceptance lieth peace. One can't accept what one doesn't even feel. I learned to feel and accept my sadness, 
and came to a place of deep peace despite my grief. And from that place of peace, I am freed to feel true gratitude for what our years in Dolly have given me, an experience of rootedness and belonging that I have not had anywhere else. And ultimately, it is a signpost pointing to my true home, where all that I miss and long for is fulfilled. I called my little journal both a lament and a love letter to my home, the hometown of my heart. And finally, we'll wrap up this episode with Shannon Aaron Stevens' reminiscences of his boyhood in Allen Creek, West Virginia. Mobile homes as landmarks, growing up in Allen Creek, West Virginia. Alum is not pronounced like you were referring to your alma mater. The Al is pronounced like the common nickname. Imagine your dad's brother is named Albert, and your mom grits her teeth whenever anyone mentions Al. That kind of Al. For natives of the place, the word is a homonym with the term for the nocturnal bird associated with wisdom. Perhaps, though, you've never heard an Appalachian say Al. If we are ever hiking together, and you hear me describe one, you might first think that I had stubbed my toe. The um in alum sounds just like when you're trying to think of something. Um, yeah, it does. Just like that. Alum Creek, West Virginia is where I grew up. It was a fun place to be a kid, especially if you like to ride a bike. Partly because there were lots of great places to ride, partly because there was little else to do. I like riding my bike. My twin brother, Adam, and I, and our first cousin, Greg, were always on our bikes. Riding a mountain bike felt more natural than walking on God-given legs to our trio of ten-year-old boys. Alum Creek is the nearest city with a post office to where I lived, true. But back then, when asked where I lived, I probably would have answered Pine Grove Road. Yes, but where on that road do you live, you might have asked. I could not have given you an address because ours was a rural route box number and it was not printed on our mailbox. The directions likely would have sounded something like this. Once you turn on to Pine Grove, go about a mile. Then you'll see a brown trailer on the right. What's that? Oh, no. A single wide. Like you live in? Yes, a mobile home. Yes. Then... There will be a house on top of a hill, then a double wide on the left as you're going around a sharp turn. At the top of the hill is a gray trailer. That's where I live. It's a long gravel driveway. You'll see my bike in the yard. This geography by trailer is a key feature of my childhood. For instance, the stretch of road we were allowed to ride on was bounded by our trailer and, quote, Paul's trailer. The brown trailer, the first one mentioned in the directions to my home, was the dwelling place of our Uncle Paul. Most grown-ups don't have summer break. Summer is the best time for riding bikes. One, because it's warm. Two, fewer parents around. Close your eyes and imagine you are watching a movie. It's an exterior scene showing a quiet country road on a summer day. Enter. Cousin Greg on a bike. To him, 
Adam and Shannon, each on bikes. Greg, hey, let's go farther down the road. Adam, no, we can't. Greg, why not? Shannon, our dad said we aren't allowed to ride past Paul's trailer. Greg, ha! Adam, but dad said. Shannon, visibly nervous. Greg, yeah, well, your dad ain't here, is he? Adam, no. Shannon, so? Greg, so? What he don't know won't hurt him. Come on! Greg then rides toward Paul's trailer and crosses the invisible border and into a curve of the road. Adam to Shannon. Shrug. Shannon to Adam. Shrug. The brothers follow their cousin. Suddenly, a red pickup rounds the corner and almost collides with all three bike riders. Dad. To Adam and Shannon from the truck. Get your butts home now. How slowly one goes on foot when pushing his bike home to an inevitable punishment. What our father didn't know may not have hurt him, but what he did know hurt us. That is what it's like being an alum of Allen Creek. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.